0: Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast my friend, Dan Hummel. Dan is the Director for University Engagement at Upper House at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we invited him on the podcast today to talk about his book, Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. I've listened to a number of your episodes. It's a awesome podcast you, have, you guys have going. I know some of the people, um, shared friends uh, of of both of ours that have been on, so happy to be here.
0: Well, so don't fuck it up. That's basically what your okay. thing. <laughs> uh, so what? What the thing that I, I don't always ask this question, but I actually am curious um, in this particular case. Why did you want to explore this particular issue? What did you think that people were misunderstanding in the present context? You know, you, you're a, a bright, young, bushy-tailed graduate student in the late aughts. You're, you're looking around for a dissertation topic, and what about this attracted you in particular? What do you think people weren't understanding about the relationship between evangelicalism uh, it's it evan- evangelism evangelical it's evangelicalism
1: right Right, evangelicalism is the the sort it's of the category of of the tradition of Protestantism uh, that we're talking about. Evangelism is uh, the activity of trying to that's convert thought, others um, to to, 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 preach to the, the faith. Good word. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: So, um, so what did you think people were misunderstanding that wanted you to go back? That made you want to go back and study the origins of this phenomenon.
1: Yeah, well, and just on that point about terminology, in Hebrew, um, the term that was historically in the 40s up to uh, probably the present uh, that was used for evangelicals was evangelistim, which would literally translate as evangelists which has a different connotation uh, than evangelicals. Uh, so anyway, it's actually an interesting uh, part of the history. But um, part of the story of why I was interested in this topic um, is is personal in the sense that I grew up and I am still an evangelical Christian. I'd call myself that with a lot of qualifiers, but I, I'd still take the, the label. Um, and so I knew growing up uh, the way that my family and and others at the churches I was a part of talked about Israel um, in particular ways, and I found some of that uh, just sort of lived experience not reflected in the scholarship. And then um, I, w- I was trained as an intellectual and diplomatic historian, and one of the things as I was reading the literature around. Uh, what's often called Christian Zionism, or sort of just pro-Israel uh, activism on the part of evangelicals, um, I noticed that there was uh, there were two things missing. One was a lack of archival research that actually documented the uh, the networks and the lines of influence that were developing between evangelicals and the state of Israel, going all the way back to the 1940s. Um, And I also uh, was sort of uh, saw a lacking of a sort of institutional perspective on the story. So as uh, many good scholars uh, have come before and documented this uh, relationship, but it's often been at the level of sort of popular culture, uh, or, or popular religious culture. And you know one uh, really well-known book is Paul Boyer's book from the 1990s called When Time Shall Be No More. Paul Boyer was at UW-Madison. Um, and so I, I was really well uh, acquainted with that book. But th- that book is largely about prophecy tracks and um, movies and other things that, to me, didn't really get at the political uh, relationship. And then there's a lot of uh, journalism and political science scholarship and and other scholarship that looked at the the political effects of the movement and sort of tried to intimate uh, what maybe was going on behind closed doors. But but wasn't doing the actual research to uh, to figure that out. So those are the two things that I really wanted to dig into in, in my dissertation and spend actual time. I spent a year in Israel. I learned Hebrew enough that I could do uh, archival research in the Israel State Archives uh, to really try to document that relationship from the inside out.
0: So let's start at the beginning of the relationship, which is, is 1948. So, so you break the uh, up the first period of um, the evangelical Jewish-Israel relations relationship. Um, between 48 and 67. So how does this start and how does it develop over the course of that period? And feel free to get into details. As as I've told previous guests, we have extraordinarily sophisticated listeners, so they (laughs) can be able to understand it all.
1: Sure. And, uh, of course, there's a prehistory to 1948 as well. There's been a long uh, history going back to the Reformation of, of Christians, of Protestants, speculating about Jews, uh, as they would call it, regathering in their homeland, and as a fulfillment of prophecy in particular. And so there's, there's Christians, you can go back to the 17th century and and find writings on this more to the point of, of the modern relationship. Even in the 19th century, there were some major figures who uh, were promoting these, uh, these types of ideas and actually encouraging Jewish migration or immigration to Palestine. Uh, One famous uh, person is William Blackstone, who was a, a evangelist and um, pastor in the Chicago area who was linked up with Dwight Moody, a major revivalist uh, of that period. He actually produced something called the Blackstone Memorial in 1891, presented it to President Benjamin Harrison as a, uh, a sort of petition, a popular petition to, uh, it was really impractical. It was basically to force the Ottoman Empire to allow more Jewish immigration to Palestine, which wasn't really in the cards uh, in terms of feasible policies. But um, what was interesting about that memorial was it wasn't just signed by sort of conservative evangelicals. There were Supreme Court justices, there were major newspaper editors, uh, there were congresspeople that signed that document as well, which is just a sign of the breadth of popularity of some type of Jewish restorationism being part of American political culture in the 19th century. Um, in the 20th century, getting closer to 1948, there was a lot of pro-Zionist activism in the Christian world, but it was largely from the what we'd call now the mainline or the, the liberal Protestant world. People like Reinhold Niebuhr were very invested in this. Uh, movement. They often argued on humanitarian grounds that Jews were suffering uh, so much anti-Semitism that they needed a country of their own, um, and that that aligned with some of the more uh, some of the the official Zionist uh, arguments as well. Um, there were also uh, conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists, which are sort of the we talk about the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s that splits in simplistic terms, uh, Protestantism into sort of a liberal modernist camp and a conservative fundamentalist camp. There were fundamentalists who were interested in Zionism. Um, They tended to come at it from their own theological commitments that included wanting to convert jews to christianity uh which was obviously a non-starter uh for the vast majority of jews and so they didn't have a very sophisticated on the ground support network supporting zionism and this is one of the things that i'm interested in uh, i was interested in in this book was really trying to document where is their actual organized activity happening and so in 1948 the big game changer is that there's a state that the uh, Christians have to deal with. Wait, actually, the, before we get into 48, yep. let's talk about yep. the Holocaust. What did they do during the Holocaust? Yeah, so this is part of, uh, it's, it's all connected. So um, the the earliest activists who uh, are from the evangelical fundamentalist world who uh, end up saying Christians need to actually get on the ground in Israel or with the Jewish community and support Zionism, uh, many of them came out of a strong a reaction to what happened in the 40s and, and the Holocaust. And particularly the interpretation most of them had was that the Holocaust was not just a uh, a genocide perpetrated by Nazis. It was a genocide largely perpetrated by Christians, by confessing Protestants in, uh, in Germany. And so that there was some Christian guilt associated to the Holocaust. And this becomes a, a big conversation among all types of Christian communities after the Holocaust. But in particular, there's someone I follow throughout uh, the book named uh, Douglas Young, who founds a center in Israel in the 1950s. Uh, But he's just a pastor in the 1940s, and he, um, he has personal guilt for not doing more. During the Holocaust, uh, he preaches against it, but he doesn't really do any more activity than that. And then he develops a pretty strong critique of Christian theology that puts uh, the blame for anti-Semitism, at least in part, on Christian anti-Judaism—the long, sort of standing critiques of Judaism that go all the way back to you know the, the first century um, with Christians and Jews. And he says uh, basically that some part of the blame for anti-Semitism that Perpetrate the Holocaust has to be placed at the foot of the Christian tradition. And so when these uh, Christians are getting involved in the 1950s uh, and 60s in Christian Zionism, there's a very strong critique of the past, uh, of, of the church uh, the church's relationship to the Jewish people that becomes, uh, this is how, uh, this is one of the things I thought was missing from the conversation was this deep engagement on sort of a theological historical level with, uh, Christian theology that it, there's also all of the end time stuff and, and, and other stuff too, but you see it really prominently today that this sense of Christian guilt, um, and this need to basically give a blank check to the state of Israel is something that Christians basically are owed, owe the Jewish people because of this long history of anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism.
2: Daniel, can you talk a little bit about attitudes uh, among this community, among the Christian evangelical community toward Islam and the Muslim population uh, of the region in this period? Was there also a desire to... Uh, you know, evangelize among that population or are they more kind of written off? I know there's the Holocaust and the sense of Christian guilt for that, that act is not present here, but surely there was some, uh, feeling about the, the Muslim population
1: yes and it 's largely uh, for those that are deeply invested in um, actually interacting with Muslims it 's largely a missions based uh, relationship so most of the the mission activity in the Middle East by evangelicals is obviously with um, with Muslims just because of the demographics of of the middle east so um, what 's interesting there is there's actually a significantly more uh, higher level of success. With uh, mi- missions work in Muslim countries, than there is with Jews in Palestine and then Israel, and so even today in in Israel, the biggest legacy of like the Southern Baptists in Israel is that there is a vibrant, though not large, but but uh, persistent um, Arab Christian community that that are Southern Baptist. Um, there are very very few Jewish converts to Christianity. In Israel, there are some, but they often come to that not through Southern Baptist missionaries, uh, but through through other means. And so, in the 1940s and 50s, um, and even going earlier than that, the first mission, the first Southern Baptist mission in the Middle East was in the late 19th century. And then the first one in Palestine was in 1909. The majority of the work is actually with Muslims and with Arab Christians as well. There's, a, there's often a tradition of, of Orthodox Christians converting to uh, evangelical forms of Christianity as well. In a broader sense, you know, these, these Americans, uh, American Southern Baptists and others, held the same Orientalist views that any other uh, American, white Americans would have held at the time. So they looked at the Middle East as a largely backward uh, region they thought it could benefit from not just Christian religion but also from Western modernity or, or sort of Western technology and forms of government. Um, if you go back even to the nineteenth century, many of the 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 colleges that become you know the, the American University in Beirut and others have missionary origins in them, and so that was seen as part of this cultural uplift uh, project. Um, and so certainly the the evangelicals in the bunch uh, had those same uh, prejudices against uh, the broader region as well.
0: So uh, I have a question before we even get into the story of your book, which is, could you give a, actually a little bit of a breakdown on Protestant theology about the Jews in 1948? Because I think that'll be a good basis from which we could then... Go on. So there, like you were talking about, this is a conversation going back to the first century, John Chrysostom, Saint Augustine, various, you know, people. But what's the state of play vis-a-vis Protestants and the Jews in forty-eight?
1: Yeah, and it, I mean that's such a crucial moment because people are processing um, the Holocaust, uh, you know, right right then. Um, in broad terms, the the vast majority of the Protestant world. Went along with the the teaching that the Catholics had as well, and which is that the Jewish people were God's chosen people up until the time of Jesus, and then because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that the the new chosen people, or or with sometimes it's called the new Israel, was uh, the Church, uh, the Gentile, the Church where anyone could join; it was not ethnically bound. Um, and then there were debates about what exactly that meant about the jewish people um, for some it meant uh they were cursed to wander that was uh you know augustine's way of thinking about it and so uh, th- that played into a long history of anti-judaism particularly in europe um for the the tradition that christian zionists come out of Um, they believed that God, they would often say God is not done with the Jewish people. And that was a response to that, that over that large tradition that said God was done with the Jewish people. And now he was moved on to to the church, um, for the Christian Zionists. They believed that the covenants that God had made with, um, the Jewish people, in Genesis uh, in particular, the book of Genesis, um, were still in effect, but they were being delayed or postponed until such a time that God decides to, to uh, sort of start that up again. And so many of the pe- many of Christian Zionists were part of a tradition called dispensationalism, uh, which is a type of Christian theology that basically teaches that right now we're in an age where God is working with the church. Uh, But there will be a rapture when suddenly all the Christians are removed from the earth and then God will resume working with the nation of Israel. And for many of the Christian Zionists uh, who get active in the 50s in particular, they're coming out of this and thinking because of the Holocaust, because of the founding of the state of Israel in 1948, um, that it seems like prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes and that sort of God is resuming or about to resume uh, work with the Jewish People. But outside of that particular uh, tradition, there's a ton of reevaluation of Protestant theology happening in the 40s and 50s. And you can see this through, uh, uh, there's a lot of monographs being written el- and elsewhere, but uh, the World Council of Tur- Churches, which is the major sort of ecumenical body, ends up denouncing anti Semitism for the first time in the early 1960s. And then, of course, in the Catholic world, Vatican II, the Nostra Aetate statement basically. Uh, uh, rejects anti-jewish uh theology and that's in uh 1962 to 1965 period.
0: Uh okay, so let, now let's get into 48 and your actual book. So so what happens, who are the major organizations, what are they actually doing, how do they embed themselves with the American state with the forming labor zionist government in Israel? How does that all
1: relate? Yeah, there's really two streams I'm looking at uh, for this period. One is those Southern Baptists I mentioned. They they are the largest uh, American Protestant community uh, with a presence in Israel in the 1940s and 50s. And they, it's for me, the really interesting shift that's happening there is uh, many of them are kicked are, are sort of recalled during World War II and then enter. Um, Palestine in 1945, or or later, once there's the state of Israel, and um, they come. Th- their idea is they're going to convert Jews to Christianity. They have very little success in that, and so they develop a different theology um, that basically says the the calling that we have is not to try to convert. Israelis. It's actually to try to support the Zionist project. And that's how we can be good Christians. And so um, the, the, the Southern Baptist Convention itself doesn't become some type of political lobbying group, but some of the key, some of the Southern Baptist leaders um, become very key Uh, informers and advisors to the fledgling Israeli state, particularly when it comes to the state trying to understand how to generate particularly American support for Israel. They also become advisors on some of these theological conversations, which I found fascinating. The Israeli state was very interested in interreligious dialogue or interfaith dialogue because they saw these theological questions as, as part of their public diplomacy project, that if they could get theological statements that were more favorable to a sort of justification for the state of Israel, or at least not an undermining of the idea of a state of Israel from a theological perspective, that this would pay dividends down the road in terms of like real world diplomacy. And so um, in, in, in real terms, that means that the Israeli state has a ministry of foreign affairs and the ministry of religious affairs that have officials or bureaucrats whose role is to sort of keep tabs on Interreligious conversations on theological conferences and to try to sort of move the needle by promoting people that they found favorable versus those they found to be promoting anti Jewish theology. So that's one whole world that's, that's developing in the 1950s. The other is, is Douglas Young, the guy I mentioned who was a pastor during the Holocaust. He ends up founding an educational institution in Jerusalem in 1958 called the American Institute of Holy Land Studies, which is ostensibly a uh, an archaeological school where you would go and learn a, a, about the methods of sort of studying the the ruins and 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 doing archaeology and that and that definitely happens there. but the bigger reason Young uh, founded the institute and the bigger reason the Israeli government was interested in even allowing it to be founded was because uh, young, as young said it, he w- he wanted to create ambassadors for Israel among the sort of elite pastor class. In the U.S. And so uh, Young's very successful at this. He develops a, a very robust program. There's a lot of interest by the state and by the sort of Israeli intellectual class around the Institute and the way that the Institute is trying to inculcate a sort of pro-Israel understanding of biblical history and of history of the region. Um, and by 1967, which is sort of this crucial point because of the Arab Israeli war, um, Young is basically the foremost Christian representative in Israel representing, uh, Christianity, but certainly, uh, North American Christianity and evangelicalism. And Young himself is very, uh, pro-israel he's very concerned about israel's security in the region and uh, he's uh, very anti-communist as well so he's lining up well with sort of broader trends uh, in the u.s in this early period there's not a lot of um, uh, u.s state activity Uh, This is a marginal movement in the evangelical world even, uh, and it's certainly a marginal movement in the sort of uh, Israeli uh, uh, sort of lobbying uh, world as well. These are just sort of the first contacts that bear a lot of fruit uh, in later decades uh, that become sort of the modern Christian Zionist movement.
0: So how does this interact with the developing Israel lobby, so-called? Because I think there's a shift that your book traces over time. But what, what's happening in the 40s and the 50s with American Jews? Um, and how do they relate to this nascent but forming Christian evangelical movement?
1: Yeah, and th- this is a. Uh, I'll, I'll shout out Doug Rossenow, who's a historian in this field, who's doing a lot of uh, really interesting new work on the early Israel lobby period, particularly the nineteen fifties. There is a very minimal actual overlap between the two at this time. There is such a distrust on the part of American Jews toward evangelicals and 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 vice versa, in terms of just sort of basic fundamental uh, terms on which. Um, this interaction, this sort of shared support could happen. What's interesting is the State of Israel is the one that's sort of trying to connect these people because what the, what the what the government in Israel is seeing is different groups of Americans who would be much more powerful together uh, than they would be apart um, in their lobbying efforts. the 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 sort of lobbying activity uh, that we see in this period is dominated by uh, American Jewish groups including a, an early APAC, uh, but also at this time, uh, the more traditional uh, civic groups like the American Jewish Committee uh, and others are, are sort of the, the the point people. What's interesting in the 50s is they develop, so I'm, I'm thinking of the American Jewish Committee in particular, they develop an interreligious affairs department in the 50s that is sort of signaling where they're going to be going uh, in the future, which is understanding that they need to have some type of working relationship with Christians if they're going to sort of maximize the ability to um, to, to lobby uh, anybody uh, in in d c and so uh, the that the first sort of American Jewish community interactions are more with mainline Protestants and Catholics just because of their positions of of influence are much better than evangelicals and fundamentalists but as a, as people like Young gain in prominence uh, he becomes someone that's very interesting to the uh, American Jewish Committee and the broader uh, lobbying community as well that only increases uh exponentially after 67.
0: We'll get there in a second, but could you talk yeah. a little bit about this concept called Judeo-Christianity, where it comes from, what is it? Because the pro- listeners probably think this is like a deeply rooted thing. <laughs> Very much is not. Uh, so what is Judeo-Christianity? Who develops it, and what does it mean literally, and what is its political impact?
1: Yeah, so there's an implication. So Judeo-Christianity would imply that there's some shared Jewish-Christian tradition that somehow—this um, was often the argument—that that underpinned, like, all of Western civilization and, and American society. It, it's, it's something you can't really find anyone referencing it until the 1930s. And there it is largely constructed as a way to contrast the sort of religious West versus the communist— uh, threat of of marxist communism which is atheistic or to the nazi totalitarianism and and there's always this contrast between the judeo-christian values and either the you know the nazi values the fascist values or the communist values um, it's largely originally promoted by liberal uh christians liberal jews people who uh, are uh really invested in contrasting the the west with these uh, threatening ideologies it's picked up in Uh, the post-war period by all types of Christians um, and Jews. Um, who see in it sort of the uh, the crucial dividing line in, in the Cold War. It's really the Judeo-Christian world versus uh, the rest of the world. Um, and so there's not a lot of uh, historical justification for Judeo-Christianity. There's uh, Arthur Cohen, who was a commentator in the 1970s, wrote a book called The Myth of, Ju- of the Judeo-Christian Tradition, um, basically pointing out that for more or less uh, 1900 years, Christians contrasted themselves to Jews. They didn't see them as a shared I mean, there was a shared text, the the Hebrew Bible, but otherwise it was a it was largely a relationship of strife and tension, uh, not one of shared values. Because of the pressures of the Cold War, also because of the pluralization of American society, as m- many more Catholic and Jewish immigrants entered the U.S. in the nineteenth and early twentieth century, there's a sense that calling the U.S. a Protestant nation, which was a very common thing to do in the nineteenth century, was really uh, not capturing um, even you know even the, the main thrust of what the U.S. Uh, religious scene was. And so Judeo-Christian was, the, was a way to sort of include Catholics and Jews into a broader uh, religious, uh, civic religion, you could say. Um, but again, it was always contrasted to uh, something, and that was often uh, the communist world.
0: This is a natural place to talk about the Cold War. So how does the Cold War shape US-Israeli relations in the 48 to 67 period, and how do evangelicals and American Jews respond to that? Um, And within that question, maybe we could talk about how the different administrations, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, LBJ, do you see a continuity of policy? Do you see different perspectives emerged during this period so just to repeat cold war presidents
1: (laughs) yeah um there's definitely uh different takes by different administrations i would say the continuity is um you don't have any of the um sort of special relationship dynamics that later uh, historians identify with with the later period and so um for truman and eisenhower they were interpreting uh the Middle East through a cold war lens and trying to understand how to balance uh, a variety of factors, Uh, key ones being promoting anti-communism in the region and also access to oil and supporting in, in some full throated way uh, a Jewish state in the region um, sort of worked against those two aims. And so you, you see um, Eisenhower in particular, he claimed to be sort of even handed in his policy uh, toward the Middle East. I think of, of all the presidents, probably since 1948 Eisenhower was the one who is who was least eager to commit to some type of robust US Israel uh, relationship and that was often because he was he was trying to appeal to other leaders in the region um, like Gamal Nasser and, and others um, and this sort of uh, supporting Israel seemed to to Eisenhower to be much more of a sort of domestic cultural issue than it was a a geopolitical issue. Um, that being said, there's definitely a a sort of uh, tilt toward Israel in the U.S. Uh, foreign policy in the region in the sense that there's never really any heavy pressure applied by the U S government to try to force a settlement, uh, in the region, um, after 1948 or, or later. Um, and, and there's, a, a, a pretty early, uh, on support, economic support and later military support of, of Israel. It, even though Israel is a labor, um, uh, largely labor-run country, they were seen as uh, anti-communist, and that that was sort of the key um, the key point for people like Truman and Eisenhower. Once we get to Kennedy and Johnson, the, um, it, it's it's interesting. There's there's a great book by Warren Bass uh, that that looks at Kennedy and uh, and Israel, and one of the big uh, issues there was the Israeli nuclear program and the desire by the U S that Israel not develop nukes and Israel did, you know, did a good job playing that card in order to get a lot of other concessions and also develop a nuclear program. Um, but, but also, excuse
2: uh, me, that is unconfirmed. I will not have any American prestige. (laughs) We're not not
0: believe (laughs) that Israel has a nuclear (laughs) weapon. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I misspoke. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll hold it back. Um, <laughs> well, uh, well, then maybe uh, maybe Kennedy was successful. We can uh, rewrite that and say uh, it was a— You're
2: welcome, everybody. <laughs> America, once again, doing the job.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um, so there's an increasing level of uh, aid given to Israel in, um, in the 60s, both Kennedy and Johnson. Um, uh, and by, by 67, 68, Johnson is obviously consumed with the Vietnam war and, um, and is, is eager to try to control it. Basically, he doesn't want other fires, um, emerging on the scene. And so there's a big debate in the field about, uh, well, I don't know if it's debate anymore, but there was a big debate about sort of, did Johnson give a green light to the six day war, uh, invasion or not? Ultimately, my take is that the, the preference by U.S. presidents during this whole period was that nothing seismic happened in the Middle East, that they were not invested in trying to transform the region. They, they really wanted to have stability to, to, to pursue their interests. Um, but uh, Nixon is really the first president that um, sees a sort of really strong um, uh, opportunity on the domestic front to lean into um, a, a sort of robust pro-Israel um uh, orientation um though right, well, so, a, yeah go ahead
0: so before we get to 67 how are you know there's a lot of american jews in the new left how, what is the new left's view of Israel um, in the mid to late 60s? And then how does this interact with or doesn't interact with at all the evangelical community? So maybe you could just give us a state of play in where they stand on the eve of the 67 uh, Arab-Israeli war uh, in terms of American Jews, the new left, and the evangelical, organized evangelical Christian Zionist community.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, there's a certain segment of the Jewish community that's anti-Zionist, and they see Zionism as sort of a fool's errand, or at least they're concerned about the way uh, Zionism interacts with other types of nationalism, including like a, a sort of U.S. Uh, nationalism. So that's one segment. And actually, some of the Jewish organizations were in that segment. I would say the, the biggest critique that sort of a, a leftist uh, take on Zionism would be was that it's a, na- it's, it's a form of nationalism. Um, it's sort of reifying a, a nation state uh, ideology. Um, when that is not uh, what what is needed uh, at the time uh, there's also a pretty robust pro-israel um, uh, take by even people on the left that uh, either because um, because of the history of anti-Semitism Jews need uh, some type of safe haven or because the Israeli state up until the 1960s um, was seen by many as to represent sort of the uh, one of the the success stories of sort of a robust socialist movement. The sort of image of the kibbutz um, as this place where, you know, everything is is communally shared and you're working off the land. I mean, this was really inspiring to to a lot of people on the left uh, through the 60s. And so there there's also a pretty strong sense that um, supporting Israel would be supporting sort of a broader a socialist agenda, um, and there was and and the Israelis uh, were happy to to encourage that vision as well. And people like Ben Gurion did so whenever they could. Um, for the evangelical community, they had an entirely different take that was much more rooted in their theological commitments and their largely conservative views of 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 economics and and other things. And so they interpreted um, Israel largely through. as I mentioned, this Christian guilt complex and also through this sense that there's prophecy being fulfilled. Um, They were very, many uh, evangelicals were very interested in correlating prophecy with developments in the Middle East and seeing Israel sort of the protagonist in that. And then they had these sort of Cold War commitments that understood Israel as an anti-communist bulwark and so was worthy of support, particularly in relation to Arab states in the region, which seemed much more prone to communist influence than did Israel.
2: Okay.
0: okay 67 what happens and how does this reshape everything that was going on
1: yeah so the 67 war uh is is a war in which israel uh you know strikes first uh, after troops are amassed uh, by arab states right on on their borders and in six days uh is is wins on all fronts almost overwhelmingly in every level. And so after the war, Israel massively increases its territory. It is in control of the Sinai Peninsula. It's in control of the West Bank, uh, the Golan Heights, East Jerusalem, and and seems to be uh, militarily unassailable uh, in the region. And this is, for many uh, American Jews and Christians, this is a pretty surprising outcome because the depiction of the state of Affairs right before the war, in even May of 1967, the war happens in June of 1967. Seemed to be that Israel was about to to perish, that that it would be entirely invaded, and and there was you know a boisterous rhetoric from. Egypt's Nasser and others about pushing the Jews into the sea and all that kind of stuff. A second Holocaust was how a lot of people were expecting it. And then there's the sort of the reverse happening. And so there's, we know now that, that Israel was very, uh, was, had a lot of advantages militarily, but those weren't often known at the time. Um, and so there's, there's not just this sort of stunning victory. It's like the psychological story of, of 1967 leads people to this like sense of elation. If they are, any type of supporter of Israel. So th- so there's this there's uh there's sort of a cultural shock to the system that suddenly means millions of American Jews and Christians are very invested in the fate of Israel in a way that they weren't in Uh, pre-1967. Some scholars call this sort of the golden age of American Jewish support for Israel, the next decade. And you certainly see the beginnings of a mass uh, evangelical interest in the state of Israel as well. And then the other factor that changes in 67 is Israel's geopolitical position is is greatly enhanced in one way. Uh, It has all this new territory. It's seen by uh, like the U.S. and others as very competent militarily, um, but in another way, it's it's also increasingly isolated as uh, much of the Muslim world, uh, much of the communist world um, basically cuts off any official diplomatic ties with Israel uh, if they hadn't already. And it, it increasingly tries to pressure Israel into um, uh, giving up the land it had just uh, occupied um, and, and forcing other concessions for a peace deal. And so Israel both has sort of... Um, wins uh, geopolitically, but also is increasingly isolated, which just means that its search for uh, allies, and particularly in, in a democracy like the U.S., domestic allies that can pressure uh, politicians becomes that much more uh, uh, desperate and active in the post-67 period.
2: This is also the period then when when domestically the, the religious right, as it were, the moral majority, whatever you want to call it, really starts to emerge as a political force, can you talk a little bit about the uh, dynamic between that process and this flurry of evangelical support for Israel? Or how, how do they relate? Is is Israel uh, an issue that that the Christian right is able to seize on to help boost its political overall political profile, or does it work kind of in the opposite direction? How does uh, you know how does how do they kind of mesh with one another?
1: yeah the the real um uh, the real christian right uh activity emerges in the mid seventies that's when you, people like Falwell become political um in the in the late sixties, the people that are sort of on the scene are people like i mentioned doug doug douglas young is is very active in this period. um another is like Billy Graham, you know the the major uh evangelist the the most admired person in the world uh, or in the u s sorry uh, maybe in the world, probably not the world in the u s um, and on this on this show. Uh, oh absolutely his ghost is sometimes a (laughs) third mic yeah (laughs) it's very good i remember that the gal you know is a gallop that does like the most admired person every year or whatever and and he think so yeah yeah he's the uh he's the 20 time champion of that or something um over the decades but um he's a figure who um sort of makes uh christian zionism much more palatable to a broader set of evangelicals because he has such and he has deep connections to golda Meir and and other israeli leaders who he visits israel multiple times um, in this period Um, but he's actually someone who's a little more interested in um in not in mobilizing millions of christians in sort of a christian right way but mobilizing them um to be uh more active in um in interreligious dialogue actually and so one of the the sort of moments I, I chronologue in the book is um, in 1973 there's this massive evangelistic campaign across the us called key 73 and the idea was that every Christian should go out and and try to convert someone basically um, through all these different programs and groups and all that kind of stuff well part of the literature had a had had sort of um, was targeting Jews as, as ripe for conversion. And Graham was part of the leadership team here. And so he, 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 he makes a statement after there's some controversy about this. And he basically disavows targeting Jews as, as objects of conversion. And this is a significant issue within the evangelical world because um, evangelicalism sees Christianity as a universal religion that that you either you know it's it's for everyone and you're either in or, or you're out, and Graham was trying to sort of carve a middle way in this uh, in this period, and he he successfully does so. He takes a lot of flack for it, um, but he's actually advised by um, some of his American Jewish friends for how to how to frame this in a way that would be palatable to them. And then he has to think about the Christian community. This is happening in 73. You know, this is sort of the height of his relationship with Richard Nixon. So, you know, Graham is very involved in politics at the same time. But what I find it interesting is that by by the time you get to people like Jerry Falwell in the late seventies, this is like a settled issue. Like Falwell doesn't have to retread this ground about uh, missions because Graham has settled it years before. And so then the the relationship that Falwell enters into between evangelicals and Israel is far more sort of um, hospitable to to conservatives like him uh, because he doesn't have to spend a bunch of energy. Uh, fighting these theological battles, Graham did it uh, before him. So that's really this 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 decade in from '67 to '76, '77 um, is when uh, there's there's a lot of uh, precedents being set that allow uh, later Christian right leaders to really take the the U.S. Israel relationship into this sort of central uh, foreign policy plank of the Christian right, which is where I, I place it in the '80s and after.
0: We haven't talked much about tourism, but how does tourism and Americans
1: actually going to Israel shape these relationships? Tourism is not a mass phenomenon. So uh, even there was a poll a few years ago that polled evangelicals, you know, 97% of them have never gone to Israel. But for for the ones that do, one reason I got interested in this is because if if you read about any of the leaders of Christian Zionist organizations, they often cite a tour to Israel as sort of a moment of decision. For them, and so for those, you know, for those elite leaders, um, it was very important. The thing that was interesting to me was how oh, the the way that the post 1967 borders uh, allowed a different type of tourism that was much more focused on the Christian history. So, for for those that don't know uh, the area, pre 1967, Israel had its claimed its capital in in West Jerusalem. Uh, West Jerusalem does not include the old city, which is like the historic biblical uh, Jerusalem. After the 67 war, Israel is controlling that uh, city. And so all of the sites that would be related to the crucifixion, to the passion, to all the stories in the Bible about Jesus being in Jerusalem, those are now available to tour if I to Israel. I have walked...
0: The station of the cross, Daniel.
1: Very good. The via the Via de la Rosa. Yes. And, yes. and yet
2: you remain unconverted. What is <laughs> well, I mean, what are you, what, What's list. the issue? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and well, and for evangelicals, the Via de la Rosa is not even that interesting because that's very Catholic to like walk the stations of the cross. Uh, they're, more in, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they're more interested in how dare you. Yeah. They're more interested in sites like um, the guard it's it's a it's a site out right outside the old city. Um, which was identified by a 19th Gathesima? century...
0: Is it Gethsezema? Gath- Gath- Gethsemane, no. Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane, Gethsemane. That's a
1: different site. That's actually. Uh, I mean, on-
2: even Andrew Lloyd Webber, you could just watch Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean,
0: you know, yeah. I'm there sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Gethsemane is also was something that um, was accessed, accessible through Israel after 1967. That's on the east, um, the the Mount of Olives. Um, but the the Garden Tomb, as it's called, is 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 actually a historical tomb from the era from an early century, um, it is highly unlikely that that is the tomb that, um, <laughs> that Jesus was in. And then, uh, you know, got up out of, uh, three days later. Um, but it, it sort of plays the role enough, but that's where, that's where, um, evangelicals wanted to go. They also wanted to go to places like Nazareth to, to see sort of the homeland. But after 67, their tour industry is just booms for Israel, particularly from Western countries, Western Christian countries. And the tours are, as you imagine, highly, um, curated and make sure to avoid any sort of extended interaction with Arabs, either Christian or Muslim, and are are intended to show a very modern Israel, but also one that is deeply rooted in this Judeo-Christian tradition. And in fact, if there are two pillars of the Judeo-Christian tradition in the world, it's sort of the Christian America and the Jewish Israel. And so the tours really um, emphasize this. And then basically any leader, as I mentioned, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, uh, are two on the Christian right. the The biggest organization today is Christians Unite for Israel. It's by a past. It's by it's founded by a pastor named John Hagee in Texas. Cuff, he had no, Cuffy, 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 If you want to uh, be on the in on that, um, Kufi, Uh Yeah. So John Hagee took a trip to Israel in 1977 that he cites ad nauseum now for um, why he's a a christian zionist and it's an it's a mix of sort of recognizing christian guilt and also recognizing the awesomeness that is uh, israel in his eyes based on this tour he had which you know gave him a very awesome uh look at the country so tourism becomes part of the israeli economy though that's not the most important part it becomes this way that they basically um cultivate leaders um up until today uh that become really inspired uh to support israel based on a very uh you know, limited personal contact, but you know, having a tour of a place and having a personal experience of a place really does build a loyalty that is hard to, to forge in, in any other way. And you see that over and over again.
0: Absolutely. That's why we bring our listeners to Derek's room. Um,
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the most important place. It's the most important site of American. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I'm just curious, you know, and we can talk more about this, um you know when we get closer to as you know and i think uh, we'll have you back we can talk talk about this when we get closer to contemporary times but i am kind of curious what did israeli leaders make of of these guys uh mm-hmm. in the 70s it, it, you you briefly mentioned that one of the connecting threads here is end times prophecy and i i i realize there are more important Things to talk about in terms of this relationship and more nuanced, you know, related to the Holocaust and related to to feelings about Israel. That and uh, you know, I think that's that's great. But there is, it, I'm I'm glad we talked about that. But there is this thing hanging out there at the end <laughs> that uh, this all ends with the Jews who don't convert, uh, you know, has suffering some some very bad ends. Uh, and that's what these people believe. And I'm I'm sort of curious whether Israeli leaders were just sort of like. Who cares? I mean,
0: this doesn't matter. This is my prediction us. as a Jew. It, who cares? They're dummies. Yeah, well, I mean, let like, them give us yeah, money. Just, That's, you know, you know, let them prediction. give us money.
2: Exactly. Um, <laughs> or if there's any sense of like pushing back against this or like, you know, looking askance uh, at these folks a- a- at all from from, uh, you know, officials in the Israeli government
1: the Israeli, Israeli leaders were, uh, very, particularly the labor leaders. When, when we get to Menachem Begin in the late seventies, um, he has a, a more religious, uh, sense of himself that allows him to connect, um, with, with Christians, um, on a different way. He would often joke that, and this is a, you know, this is a joke that, that goes around the movement a lot, but, you know, um, when the Messiah comes, we'll ask if he's been here before. And, um, if he has, then the Christians were right. If he hasn't, then the Jews are right. Um, for the earlier labor leaders, that, that really wasn't how they, uh, that wasn't how they joked around. I guess they weren't they weren't interested in that type of joke. But they, they were they they were largely instrumental in their understanding of this. So you know they didn't believe any of that end time stuff. So um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of like a debate they wanted to have. I would say the, the most interesting thing was they they let it be known to people like Douglas Young that this was not proper conversation topics. Uh, when when Jews and Christians got together, don't be talking about the end times. And so you actually see. People like Young policing Christians more strongly than even Israelis uh, would, and so Young, knowing what respectability looked like in interacting with the Israeli government, would be quite um, uh, quite persistent in policing how Christians uh, engaged with Israel. This is a sort of the top level when when there are like conversations happening. Um, Young Young held to some of those beliefs I, I, I talk about it in the book. He also modified some of the more gruesome details. And I think he came to that both instrumentally and because he did a lot of studying and, and actually tried to convince himself of, of different views. But, you know, one really practical thing he developed was, um, I mentioned this idea of the rapture, that sort of all the Christians would be uh, would go up before the, the worst uh, things would happen. Um, well, Jung developed a second rapture that would save most of the Jews before the really, really bad stuff happened. Um, and so he wanted to sort of throw a bone there theologically to say, yeah, it's going to be rough for a few years, but then, too, the Jews will also be able to escape the like the horrible, you know, the, the, the plagues and all that kind of stuff. So you see this interesting modification of theology to try to meet. How many raptures
2: can we get going here? Can we get a third one for, like, Buddhists or something? I mean, like, you know what, what let's see how many we can cram in there.
1: Right, right. Uh, It's amazing how complicated some of these systems get. I've never seen more than two raptures, but I've seen other sort of bells and whistles added to where you've got, you know, seven or eight stages going on uh, at the same time. So um, all this to accommodate their readings of the Bible, but then there are also these sort of real world pressures that are leading them to want sort of motivated reasoning as well on this stuff.
0: So, a, a couple of questions: How did the evangelical Christian Zionists and the American Jews respond to the occupations in this early period?
1: Um, they uh, they largely ignored them in the sense that they didn't see a massive humanitarian issue yet, uh, or and many of them still don't. But um, for for particularly for the seventies, the occupations were seen. Um, in in one of two ways, either as a temporary measure that would lead to a uh, some type of uh, peace peace solution, and so in that sense, Israel should hold on to them because um, these were major bargaining chips in some type of uh, peace process um, the second which was the more uh, this is where many Christian Zionists landed and many Israelis did too which is that these are actually part of of the Israeli of the Jewish homeland like in the biblical borders of Israel what they would call Judea and Samaria which is largely the West Bank but they would insist on calling it Judea and Samaria are part of, of the Israeli homeland and, and the the ancient Israelite nation and so this was this was not an occupation Patient. this was a liberation that was often Begin's turn of phrase this is actually liberating ancient is, is, is Jewish land to the Jewish people so they did not see an issue there and and many of them um, celebrated the early settlements um, there was actually part of the tourism uh, in, in later in the 70s was to go visit settlements that was part of a, a, a common tour and it was like um, uh, it was like seeing American pioneers in the west or something like that like it was a celebration of a, a way of sort of uh, life that was, um, you know, grassroots and, and uh, uh, Manifest Destiny uh, type, uh, yeah, type frontier, work. Frontier. Yeah, frontier. And so it, it sort of connected, much like the kibbutz did for an earlier generation of Christians, the settlements connected to evangelicals as a, a very much an American— there's a lot of American overlap in values and, and the way it looked. Nixon.
2: That, that's Let's true. Uh, <sighs> well, I mean, that's that's true. Uh, not in a positive way, I would say it's uh, uh, there is a lot of overlap, though, between the settlements and, and
0: U.S. history. That's that's, that's for right. Sure. Yeah. Agreed. So before Derek rudely cut me off, <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, Tricky Dick Nixon and and how does he reshape uh, U.S. Israeli relations? And uh, if you if you'd like, in that talk about the seventy three war, um, which does lead to you know the end of the mayor slash labor period in Israel history, Israel's history, and the rise of Begin,
1: right. Um, and here I'll call out um, Noam Kochavi, a, a, an Israeli historian who's written a ton on, on Nixon and Israel. Um, I, you know, in, in the simplest terms, Nixon sees a major um, domestic uh, coup in getting closer with um, Israel, in that it appeals to a lot of. Nixon voters and and his base, and particularly his Christian base. Um, He also has uh, more larger Cold War uh, aims at the same time. Uh, Nixon has a sort of strategy for the Middle East that is to support um, particular, uh, particular countries in the region, and the two he picks out as, as most deserving of support are Israel and Iran. Um, and so for much of Nixon's tenure, he's paying special attention to those two countries. And so uh, a lot of what Nixon does with, with Israel is, um, is, is, uh, is, is oriented toward, uh, promoting sort of his domestic, uh, political, uh, support. Um, and you see that in his meetings with Graham, with Billy Graham, um, some of them, uh, taped with the White House uh, tapes, and you see both a really, uh, su- maybe not surprising, but, but virulent antisemitism that Nixon and Graham share, particularly around liberal American Jews, um, but you also see a, an idealization of Israel and of Israelis and Israeli leaders as sort of military geniuses, as the solution in some ways to the whatever was, hap- sort of the incompetence that the US is showing in in Vietnam, whatever Israel's doing, we should do more of that because that seems to be a really effective uh, military approach. So you see all that happening in the background. Um, In the 1973 October war, this is when, I don't know if maybe you guys can um, correct me. It's when uh, the nuclear alert level uh, is changed. I don't know if it's happened since then, but that was one of the times um, the nuclear level changed because of um, concerns about uh, sort of the Soviets joining, joining that war. Um, but that war is seen as largely an Israeli uh, stalemate with Egypt. Uh, Egypt uh, wins back a good amount of territory and uh in the in the post-war uh, diplomacy um but it's also seen as a as a point when the u.s can even more um sort of uh, nudge in and become a major supplier of israeli aid and so uh infamously or famously. Uh, There's a lack of aid uh, in the first few weeks of the war, and then there's a major airlift in the third week of the war by the U.S. uh, that really helps um, Israel uh, sort of turn the tide and and lead to the stalemate. Uh, After the war, uh, Israel is further convinced that they need more domestic support in the U S and so you see the there's a ramp up obviously after 67 in trying to reach out to religious groups in the U S Christian groups. Um, after 73, it becomes even more stark in part, because through the 73 period through the war, it's a, it's an opportunity for Christian leaders of all types to make a statement on the war. And many of the evangelicals are now making very robust statements and they actually have organizations behind them at this point, uh, supporting Israel while many of, uh, the non evangelical Christian organizations organizations are much more tepid uh, of their support for Israel during the war in part because they're developing a more critical look at the occupation and of Israel's role in the region that comes out of the 67 war and so today you know today you see many mainline uh, liberal Protestants uh, are quite critical of Israel some that have even uh, joined the boycott uh, movement and and the roots of that go back to this 67 to 73 period
0: what about Kissinger Kissinger is not uh, an American-born Jew, but, you know, German exile, American Jew, uh, doing a lot of stuff with Israel. Do you have any thoughts about Kissinger and the Jews? Many
1: people uh, obviously noted noted that and assumed that he would be sympathetic to Israel because of that shared ethnic connection, including Israelis. They assumed that as well. Uh, Kissinger, as far as I read him, did not have a particular sympathy to uh, at least not on that point, uh, not because uh they were all uh they were all Jews. Um Kissinger saw Israel entirely, I think, as a, in sort of a realpolitik mode and was um uh was was approaching was trying to sort of sideline any type of uh sort of cultural values uh, or or ideological arguments uh, that maybe christian zionists would make um for his realpolitik analysis and this is one reason why once nixon is out of the scene and it's it's ford and kissinger um there's a lot more critique of is is, of u.s policy even by christian zionists um because they see uh kissinger as not following through on the promises that um and, and sort of the the approach and 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 uh, disposition that Nixon was promoting, uh, Ford is is sort of outsourcing a lot of that diplomacy uh, to nix uh, to Kissinger, and uh, Kissinger is not uh, talking the same way or polling the same way as Nixon was.
0: So, final question: Could you just set up the state of play in '76, which will lead into the next episode? Where are the evangelical Christians? Where are the Jews? And where is the United States in Israel?
1: '76 is. Um, a convenient periodization, in part because that is the election of Jimmy Carter. That's Newsweek uh, calls it the year of the evangelical because Carter's an evangelical, and suddenly everyone's talking about evangelicals. As it turns out, Carter is a much different type of evangelical than um, uh, Jerry Falwell and others. But uh, evangelicals are really cohering into. Um, a political demographic group at this point. Um, they've obviously been around and they've been politically active. There's uh, That's sort of a myth of uh, some of the historiography is that evangelicals weren't politically active until the 1970s or something like that. They've been active all the way back into the 1920s and, and after. But in 1976, there's this sense that Um, evangelicals are organizing on a scale politically that they'd never had before. And initially Carter's victory is seen as evidence of that, though you could also see uh, Carter's defeat in 80 as as even more uh, evidence of that. Um, At the same time, this is still within the golden era of American Jewish support for Israel. So there is almost unified, at least on the organization level, unified consensus uh, support for Israel and a sort of deference to Israel to define its own interests um, and, uh, and and American Jews to uh, sort of support, American Jewish organizations at least, to support those interests. Um, that breaks down uh, initially with the 77 election of Menachem Begin because he is such a different ideological a tradition than that had been in Israel before. Many American Jews start, that is the beginning of some of them questioning that sort of unified support uh, of Israel. And then finally, at, at the uh, diplomatic level, um, this is the beginning of the, of, uh, not the beginning, but the sort of still first era of the peace process. We're, we're still before Camp David, when you have your sort of first major arrangement or, or agreement between Egypt and Israel. Um, this is the era of shuttle diplomacy, when Kissinger is, is moving around all the different states in the middle east trying to find a peace solution and so there's still a lot of optimism that there's some type of easy peace for or land for peace solution coming out of the 67 and 73 wars that somehow there can be particularly from the american perspective a secured israel but also a state that would uh, at this point either be you know sort of jordan would include um some land that would be for Palestinians, um, or you start getting talk of a separate Palestinian state, uh, during this period as well. Um, but that's all seen as sort of these, these promising conversations that, um, that will be sort of solved in the next few years. And, um, uh, so there's a lot of optimism and a lot and of, they were,
0: and see you all that's next right. time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Dan Hummel. Everyone check out Covenant Brothers, particularly if you come from an evangelical background or you've been involved in in Jewish organizations. It's very interesting. Reveals an entire new history. And uh, Dan Hummel will have you back. If you're Pat Robertson,
2: please contact us about sponsorship (laughs) deals. We have very reasonable rates.
0: The Century Club (laughs) is already subscribing. So uh, Dan, (laughs) thank you so much and we'll see you soon. Bye Bye. Awesome. Pleasure to be with you.